Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very excited to be joined today by Glenn Albright. Glenn is the co-founder and director of research at a company called Cognito, doing really interesting work with simulations and behavioral sciences, behavioral research. We're going to be talking more to Glenn about that. But before we get into any of that, Glenn, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you so much, Michael. Glad be here. To begin as a rite of initiation, we always like to hear our guests' origin stories, what got them to this point in their professional life. Can you share that with us? Uh, Sure, I'd love to. So I'm an associate professor at Baruch College, which is one of the senior colleges of the City University of New York. And one of the courses that I taught way back in the late 1990s was a course called The Psychology of the Internet. And we always get very talented students. And very often in this case, I got students that knew a lot more than me about some of the aspects of the internet. So we got together and started to talk about the potential of using simulations to help people to learn and put together a business proposal. That is the students put together a business proposal and submitted it to Baruch's entrepreneurship competition. And they placed third, which gave them some seed money to be able to start Cognito. Mm -hmm. And that's where it all began. I've heard there is some research that that you've been looking into around the the way we perceive video or photorealistic humans in our simulations or our trainings versus more of a VR simulation, which is more what Cognito does. I believe there's some interesting findings, some interesting research that you've been doing. There's a lot of interesting research out there, and it's based on our understanding of how to make role play conversations in a virtual environment more effective. Uh When you and I role play with a virtual character, and this character is uh, coded with emotions and memory and personality, and we'll react like a real person, okay? So we have a tendency to feel less judged. We have a tendency as a learner to uh, feel safer Mm. and to open up. We're not concerned about negative feedback. Yeah. And we're willing to be more curious in interacting with the virtual character, more inquisitive. Mm. And it also reduces what we call social evaluative threat. Now, this is the anxiety that people feel in face-to-face role plays with an instructor and sometimes with other people around. Yeah, that's that almost sounds like Zoom fatigue. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So you end up feeling anxious, and this reduces that anxiety because you're talking to a virtual human who is, again, not going to judge you. Yeah. And interestingly enough, there's also a decrease in transference reactions because the the way virtual humans look, they have more of a neutral appearance. Mm -hmm. And so they don't remind you of a significant other in your life, in your past. So it reduces that cognitive load Mm -hmm. that can interfere with a role play and what you're trying to teach a person to do. Yeah, it's fascinating. It immediately takes me to the, the Turing test and the uncanny valley, where as the robot becomes too human, you start to to get creeped out and feel uncomfortable about it. That sense of otherness to the agent that you're interacting with, it's somehow wired into us. And then it's interesting to explore how you can design 
these experiences that are really there to train professionals in how to engage appropriately in complicated behavioral settings. Can you give us a little bit of context uh, just to introduce folks to what Cognito is doing? Cognito is a health simulation company based in New York City. We started in 2003 and we create simulations that really train people how to navigate difficult conversations in the areas of health and behavioral health. Mm -hmm. So this is accomplished by placing the learner in a virtual environment where they engage in a conversation where they could be a virtual patient, or could be a, a student, for, as an example. Yeah. And in the process of engaging in this conversation, you learn to use evidence-based communication strategies to be able to effectively manage that conversation. Mm -hmm. So by that type of active learning and that type of practice and receiving feedback from a virtual coach along the way that either rewards you or reinforces you for correct conversation tactics or yeah. makes other suggestions, you get really good at doing this in real life. Mm -hmm. So for example, as a teacher, if I have a student that I'm a little bit concerned about because they seem depressed, withdrawn, this simulation, the practice, gives me the confidence and the ability to be able to approach that student, to be able to set up a safe and trusting environment with them so they feel that they can open up, yeah. and then start talking about what's going on. So potentially, you get an opportunity to refer a student to the counseling center, as an example, to help mm -hmm. them out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the part that makes this much more serious in a way, too, is that frequently you're training people who are going to be in a, a high stakes crisis conversation. Hopefully you can catch uh, behavioral health stuff as early as possible, but mm -hmm. there is training that needs to be done for, per se, a suicide counselor. And to be able to do that with that same level of difference, I guess, that you get with a, a virtual patient, a virtual customer, virtual client. I, I imagine it, it, it is it's very helpful in those contexts. Oh, you, you nailed it. You can imagine having a conversation, let's say with a veteran, a colleague or friend of yours who you're concerned is suicidal. Yeah. And they have access to the means, like they maybe have a revolver, loaded yeah. revolver. And so in navigating that conversation, you have to ask them if they're suicidal, how they would do it, mm -hmm. and then motivate them to seek help and to eliminate the means yeah. of, of, of possible suicide. So yeah. it, the only way you can really do that effectively is if you practice at doing it. Right. And this is exactly what we do. Um, right. And some of the conversations can be very heavy. Some of them aren't heavy, but they prevent heaviness later on. If yeah. You know. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and you've been doing this a long time. So I imagine there is a, a, a certain art, you mentioned the science, but it also sounds like there is an artistry, uh, uh, mm -hmm. craftsmanship to the design thinking that really builds compelling instructional media. I've oh, always felt yeah, that with yeah. the, this range of experience that you have, I'd love to hear some of your perspective. Well, this, the people that work at Cognito, the instructional designers, the animators, the script writers, they're incredible and their hearts are in it. There's a very human feeling of being able to help other people manage these conversations and to make a difference in people's lives. In terms of my role, since I'm director of research, 
I am responsible for examining the efficacy of the simulations. Mm -hmm. Do they work? Yeah. Do they change behavior? Mm -hmm. Do they change people's attitudes? And that's really important. And once you have that information, then you can publish it in journals. You can sure. do case studies and white papers and so on. Yeah. And also you want adoption in hospitals and behavioral health centers, and they're going to want to see the evidence of the efficacy. And in a lot of these cases, they're very measurable outcomes, I would imagine. The outcomes that we look at are two very basic categories, if you will. One of them addresses changes in attitudinal constructs. And the three constructs we measure are self-efficacy or confidence in your ability to for example, identify a patient who is using substances. The second one is likelihood or behavioral intent. Are you confident? Do you have the behavioral intent? And then are you prepared? So that's preparedness, self-efficacy, and likelihood. If you change those constructs, you will influence the behavior because those constructs predict behavior. Mm -hmm. And then the, the second important area is the actual measurement of behavior change. So if you go three months out or six months out, are those simulations influencing people's behaviors? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then we haven't really gotten to the changes founded in 2003. That's quite a span of time to, to be managing this space. But fast forward to 2019 into 2020, that was one universe that we lived in. And then the pandemic hit. And one of the areas that I really wanted to get into with you is What's it been like leading an organization like Cognito in such a transformative year where everyone was immediately forced online and then also faced with unprecedented mm -hmm. trauma and psychological stress? What a place to be and to make a difference. We know the pandemic is creating, has created a uh, mental health tsunami. And due to a number of reasons, ranging from unemployment, violence in the household, substance use, they predict 70,000 additional deaths because just alcohol and suicide alone due to mm. the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So you have a tremendous increase in anxiety disorders, depression, the whole gamut is having a tremendous impact on mental health. Yeah, and, and so to be able to have simulations where people can learn to identify when someone's struggling and how to engage them in a helpful conversation and then refer them is incredibly rewarding. And the other part about it that I really get excited is that when you teach people to be able to do this, you're more likely to help yourself. Mm. You're more likely to identify, hey, I have a problem and I know what to do. And that's incredibly important because it helps us to address the stigma that's associated with substance use, yeah. mental health, et cetera. Yeah. Among the many awakenings around the transformative year that we've been through, the stigma around mental illness seems to be less strong perhaps than it was prior to the pandemic. I think there is more shared understanding of just the challenges that we're all facing, everyone was suddenly confronted with these serious life challenges in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. And I think that was an opportunity for us to become a little more reflective. Do you have to now somehow incorporate this transformative, meaning rich year that we've been living in into your simulations to, to help connect mm -hmm. it to what people are feeling? Yeah. In terms of dealing with 
the different crises that are evolving and having simulations that address that, yes. So for example, we have simulations for pre-K 12 on trauma-informed teaching, mm -hmm. how teachers can pick up trauma in students, how they handle it, how can they engage in what we've referred to as social-emotional learning mm -hmm. to create an environment that facilitates mental health and reduces stigma. We have simulations that are addressing diversity and inclusion, yeah. sexual misconduct prevention, simulations for veterans and active duty to help prevent suicide and address psychological distress before it becomes out of hand. So yeah. there's a whole bunch more. And a lot of this is driven by the needs that we're identifying and trying to meet those needs. And then is there a, a relatively fast cycle time on the turnaround? Because it, it had to have been a very difficult year, for example, to be standing up the diversity and equity stuff in light of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter when you're still transitioning out of your office into working remotely. I'm getting more work now out of from my home than I was when I was in the office. It's incredible. And all of our team have, as you might imagine, a, a very large number of meetings, very cohesive, and a very efficient way of turnaround time in either modifying existing simulations to meet a need or creating new ones. And a new one, depending on the number of conversations and its complexity, can be anywhere from four months to eight months okay. uh, from start to finish, which is pretty fast when you're leveraging the type of technology and the proprietary software we have to mm -hmm. facilitate the uh, authoring tool. Yeah. What about platforms like Immersion that I've heard a bit about, which is more, they're live actors on the other side of the virtual experience. Do you have any perspective on the differences? Because that's another space that is interesting yeah. and, and I've heard people talk about. I do. And what comes to my mind is the fidelity of the learning experience. When you're doing a simulation, each learner can have a different experience in the conversation based on their conversation tactics. And the virtual character will respond based on the input of nationally recognized subject matter experts, end users, beta testing. So they have very high fidelity that are culturally sensitive, yep. won't fatigue. They don't age. You can replay it, start over again and again. It has advantages that other types of, of training don't have. Yeah, that makes sense around the implementation fidelity. And also, I just started, I'm, I'm not done with the book, but Daniel Kahneman has a new book out uh, called Noise, where he talks about how frequently human-powered systems have more noise in that it's more arbitrary what you'll actually get depending on the human that you're interacting with. So as much as I'm an advocate of the live interactivity and that ultimately when it's go time, the behavioral mm -hmm. experience is live, but it is interesting to think about it in many ways, these virtual components are better than live. Yes. And that's, yeah. uh, that's surprising, but, uh, but it makes sense. Yeah. Exactly. It's, yeah. It's, it's amazing when you think about it. Yeah. So what about the advent of this generation of virtual reality? Are you noticing changes in the perception of doing this through a simulation? Are you finding that people are more open to 
understanding how simulations might make sense just because more people have ready access to them? The platforms certainly are more diversified in delivery where you can get it on mobile devices and so on. Also, in terms of the development of the characters, there's more attention played towards the body movements, body language, facial expressions. Yeah intonations of speech, all making it uh, a little bit more real, but not hitting that uncanny valley as you were mentioning earlier. Yeah. And, and thoughts about how this might relate to advances in virtual reality and gaming and Ready yeah. Player One, where, you know, in some ways you could envision this being, I put my Oculus on and mm -hmm. suddenly I'm sitting in this simulation. Any thoughts about that? Yes, we have been looking at that and doing some work with it. And particularly in light where you have to be cognizant of situational variables within your environment. Mm -hmm. So if you're, for example, teaching a law enforcement officer how to handle a situation, they have to be things within their environment yeah. that are reacting. Yeah. And this gives them a chance through through these types of devices to be able to learn how to manage these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it does seem as though you could connect this type of instructional design to innovation that's happening around game design. Because it, it, even I imagine some of the talent pool that you're tapping into probably has some experience if you're talking about say like 3d modeling uh for example there's overlap between the types of folks who are great at it who might move into gaming and also someone who maybe began in gaming and then is interested in moving into the learning space i'd love to hear uh some perspective from you on the the, the differences or or overlaps between the two that's out of my wheelhouse i wish uh, someone from our tech team was here because uh, i know that they're right on top of it in terms yeah, of gaming yeah. strategy we've hired people from the gaming world yeah uh, and also looking at ai in terms of how it influences processing conversations and the whole gamut they're thinking years ahead yeah and more happens in a year than ever before it's a really fascinating time as we pivot towards looking further ahead where do you see this heading any perspective around learning healthcare simulations as the simulated experience gets more into the norm of people's lives and in education in healthcare it's already really advancing fast in healthcare and when those simulations start to address critical areas that are emerging as a result of the pandemic. We've already talked about mental health, mm -hmm. a little bit about trauma and how you can identify the impacts of trauma, how you can swim way upstream and prevent trauma from occurring because a good amount of trauma begins in the first 18 years of life, especially in the first five years of life mm -hmm. uh, with adverse childhood experiences. The training has to be towards parents, for example, yeah. and how they can reduce the incidence of adverse childhood experiences, how to correctly change their child's misbehaviors without traumatizing them, yep. preparing them more effectively for pre-K-12, because we know that early trauma interferes with learning, yep. memory, executive functioning. Mm -hmm. It also creates a huge amount of physical problems, chronic diseases, hypertension, cancer, heart disease, hepatitis. So it's all coming from experiences that you've had the first 18 years of life. Yeah. Using this technology to psychoeducate people. Yeah. And that's sometimes pretty tough because you've got to change people's attitudes. And then especially too, in terms of correcting a child's misbehaviors, because you and I 
we have a tendency to correct our child's misbehaviors the way that our parents corrected our behaviors. So if you had a parent who, for example, hit you really hard and left marks, mm-hmm. you'll have a tendency of wanting to do that. So how do you put that in check? How do you identify your feelings and then not act out on them? How do you teach the child to identify their feelings and act appropriately? Yeah. How to generate empathy uh, within children and how to navigate relationships and how to problem solve all comes very early in life. And then you're stopping all this these problems, both mental health problems and physical problems that are occurring later on that are costing billions and billions of dollars every year in our economy. Mm-hmm. And we're not even addressing what's happening worldwide in yeah. terms of trauma and its impact and how these simulations can be distributed, culturally sensitive, languages appropriate to places around the world where school teachers, where civic leaders and so on can learn how to help, for example, children or adults who've been traumatized to work through it. Yeah. I'm not sure if that answered your question. No, that was good. That's the kind of stuff we like. I'll tell you something just because you're a parent. Okay. Yeah. These adverse childhood experiences. Okay. Before COVID came around, they were considered the number one public health concern Hmm. because they create so much problems later on downstream that makes sense yeah and you know what worldwide what the most traumatizing event that's going to evolve water shortage Mm. so you're going to have masses of populations moving yeah huge amounts of conflict as a result of that and trauma so what can we do about that yeah yeah it's some big ideas and it, it is interesting to think through how part of what's happened in the last year is that parents have been activated in a new way in in terms of their relationship to education. That's been a massive trend that we've seen, particularly in K-12 education, where what had been somebody else's problem suddenly became parents' problem in a very authentic way. And then to think about whether there's a way to grow the psychoeducation, which I hadn't really heard that term before, but the idea of the education of parents, I still joke when I, me and my wife, we had our son a couple weeks early, so we hadn't gone to parenting class and (laughs) we kept on telling the nurses and the the folks or the doctors, hang on, we're not ready to go so fast. We haven't had our parenting class yet. But if you think about how brief that is, and then it's gone, and then you're just, you're at home with your kid. And hopefully you have the wherewithal, hopefully you're there with your partner and you're able to get it together, but it's a very difficult time in your life. And then if you add on top of that, some profound distress, whether it is a water shortage or the uh, public health emergency, like what we've just been going through, it is a really interesting time to think about the readiness of folks to lean into this type of simulation-based education. Can you talk a bit about that? How widely adopted is simulation-based education and what level of interest you've seen over the years? It's growing. We have over one and a half million users, especially if it's supported by research, if it's evidence-based, if it's able to meet randomized controlled studies criteria mm-hmm. uh, and the funding agencies for healthcare or higher education or K-12 really mandate that a simulation does work? And are you going to measure its impact at your hospital or facility or institution or whatever? 
Yeah. We're very cognizant of that. That's why the research is so important yeah. uh, to us. And so it is growing. Um, yeah. Because I'm wondering, as a parent, my wife just bought me an Oculus Quest for my birthday recently. I could envision myself wearing the VR headset and going through like virtual parenting training, particularly <laughs> if I could get some scoring. I could see this being a pretty compelling space. And do you envision any of that? Do you think this yeah. might cross over to yeah. the consumer side? We have a program that was funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. It's called Calm Parents, Healthy Kids. Mm. And a parent or caregiver is placed in one of four simulated situations that they have to manage with their child. The first one is their child pushes another child down on the playground. The second one, you're on a very important phone call and your child, two to five years of age, keeps on interrupting you. Yeah. The third one is that you have to pick up your older child and your younger child is really resisting getting ready. Yeah. And then the last one, your two-year-old has a temper tantrum in the grocery store. Uh-huh. Now, all of these situations activate a parent, if you will, that activate a fight or flight response. <laughs> yes. And, and indeed, this is where parents can mishandle it. They don't understand the situation. They react out of their own anger. So let's give them some practice in how to manage these children yeah. and predict future events to prevent them from happening, mm-hmm. which is swimming way upstream as yeah. an example for yeah. consumers. We have virtual coaches for women who have triple negative breast cancer. Mm. You're in a virtual conversation where this virtual character is answering all the critical questions that you have for the purpose of getting you into treatment and saving your life. Same thing, uh, virtual coaches for helping pediatricians to talk to obese children and their parent. Yeah. Because obesity is a tremendous problem. They're coaches as well as virtual conversations. Yeah. Telemedicine, telehealth is another thing that has had a, a fresh iteration of late. Everyone's thinking about it in new ways. Are there places where you could see the the virtual agent perform some of the lower level healthcare interactions with patients. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. The exciting things on the frontier to have them be able to effectively do that. Yeah. Uh, Right now we have simulations that train healthcare providers in how to conduct telehealth sessions because they make a lot of mistakes, but you're taking it one step further. Let's get a little bit of information and then get the healthcare provider updated on where they're at before they enter the conversation. Because a lot of healthcare winds up being those levels of triage and you know right. filtering. And you could imagine some of that filtering, particularly if people can do it from their homes or through an app, that it could scale so that the triage is better, so that you're only really bubbling up to the limited human professionals. Right. The thing that's real important here is say that your part of your triage is a depression inventory that nurses and physicians often give in the office. Yeah. If you're sent online this inventory and you, you know, check yes, no, that's a very cold experience. Mm-hmm. So if you have a virtual character who's warm, mm-hmm. empathic, understanding, and ask you questions in a way that uh, makes you feel comfortable, that's where it's at. Mm-hmm. And that's going to actually impact on whether or not a patient continues on with the treatment and complies with the care plan. 
Yeah. Really interesting stuff. Glenn Albright, thanks so much uh, for joining. Before we let you go, we always love to ask our guests, what mm-hmm. else out there in the world around us is capturing your imagination these days? So we've talked a lot about healthcare simulations. You can always bring it home with more in that space. But is there anything else out there that if folks are trying to understand where the world of learning is going, this would be useful for them to be thinking about? My passion you already hit upon, and I talked about in terms of understanding the impact of trauma on people's lives. I I teach graduate clinical students a course in trauma, grief, and recovery. And there's so many mental health professionals who don't know how to work with trauma. And so my passion and interest is to arm healthcare providers, mental healthcare providers, with the type of experience and information to be able to, you know, really help people who've been traumatized. Yeah, they can tell the mission's coming through loud and clear, and it sounds like one great set of tools to help equip folks with what they need to be effective in those mental health scenarios are simulations, behavioral simulations like those that have been powered over the years by Cognito. So it does seem like there's some congruence to what you're doing in in a nice way. This is amazing stuff, Glenn. And if folks want to learn more about Cognito, where should they go? There's a number of different simulations that you could take for a test drive on Cognito's site. And that's spelled K-O-G-N-I-T-O.com. In addition to participating in some demos. You can get access to the research, the learning model, et cetera, et cetera. That's awesome. Glenn Albright is the co-founder and director of research at Cognito. He's a wonderful guest. Hopefully you enjoyed the conversation. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. 